a Podcast One production. It's January 2002. I'm in Corvallis, Oregon, at OSU, Oregon State University, to celebrate one of their most famous graduates, Douglas Engelbart. Now, we'll have a lot more to say about Doug Engelbart in an upcoming episode. So just by a short introduction, I'll tell you that he's simply the Thomas Edison of our connected world. And you've probably never heard of him. But that doesn't mean he's unknown, and OSU is taking this opportunity 50 years after he graduated to celebrate Engelbart's life and achievements. Now, I was chuffed to be invited to be part of the crew assembled to present at a two-day conference on his work and influence. And I remember giving my talk all about the unfulfilled promise of his work, all the things that remained to be done. And as soon as I walked off stage, one of the other presenters came up to me and asked, Mark, have you ever heard of Wikipedia? I hadn't. Now, that's not at all surprising. It had been going for less than a year. It only had about 10,000 entries. That's less than a child's encyclopedia. But I could see the potential because Wikipedia allowed everyone, everywhere, to contribute from their knowledge. And that contribution would be available to everyone, everywhere, immediately. That's a great thing. That was a genuinely new thing. We'd never been able to do anything like that until the web came along. Now, it took a fair few years for the rest of the world to catch on. In that time, we learned heaps about the power of sharing, about how a resource shared can become a resource squared, that knowledge multiplied by minds and experience yields something well beyond the sum of its parts. And we live in that world now, with more knowledge and more capacity and more potential than ever before. Are we making the most of that? Today I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this Baker's Dozen Extra episode of Series 2, we continue our conversation with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. One of the main reasons that future is incredible, one of the main reasons to be optimistic in a time when optimism isn't getting any easier is that we're working out how to work together at scale. Now, I wouldn't say we're good at this, not yet. We're really just getting started. But even Wikipedia, as a good first version of what's possible, shows us that our future together is very bright. But of course, so much depends on what we tell one another about that future. If that person hadn't told me about Wikipedia as I walked off stage in January 2002, who knows how long it would have been before I'd learned about it. We do need to share what we know. That's part of what we're learning how to do at scale. And there are a few very special individuals who are very good at sharing. Michelle Bowens is one of them. As the founder and guiding light of the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, Bowens has spent the last 15 years out there learning from those who are pioneering new ways to help us solve problems and succeed together. 
Bowens built the P2P Foundation as an open platform to share everything he's learned and to create a space for everyone else everywhere to communicate and share everything they're learning. Are we learning enough? Are we doing enough with what we're learning? These are the sorts of questions Michelle can answer. Michelle, welcome to the next billion seconds. Thank you, Mark. And it's really enjoyable to think we've known each other for 25 years. It's going on 25 years now. So what has happened over that 25 years? Take us through this. We've already had Darren Sharp on. Darren Sharp was the third guest on the show. He talked about sharing cities, but you've actually come from a point of view that's even sort of broader and deeper around this emergence of what we now call the peer-to-peer culture. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so actually, you know, we have to start from the kind of point of view that is four basic ways of organizing human exchange. And the very first one, which started with, you know, bands of humans roaming the earth, you know, with their families, not not very big groups, they didn't want property because what you own, you have to carry. And when a hunter went out and he came back with a... Um, with a deer or, you know, other gatherers came back with, with their food. It wasn't private property. There were some rules. Who gets it first? Who gets it second? And actually, the hunter was last because he got a prestige. So he didn't need the food that much. And so whenever you exchange with a totality, you are in a commons. You are pooling, mutualizing resources. Unfortunately, um, this kind of system stops working when you have about 150 people. So this is a finding from an anthropologist called Dunbar, and it's called a Dunbar number. So as soon as you know one tribe had the idea of maybe attacking another to get something that they didn't have, uh, and it got bigger, we invented hierarchy. And the hierarchy brings down the cost of communication and coordination and everything else. And it brings down the cost because rather than having to run around and basically make sure 150 people are across what you want to do, exactly. it's coming from the leader and then the leader tells the follower and then the follower tells his followers or her followers all the way down. Yeah, to simplify it you know, a little bit, if you're under 150, you can basically solve all your problems by talking to people mm. and saying, you know, what do you think about this and is it okay with you? And this kind of breaks down. And so, because you said very well at the beginning, you know, it has existed since the dawn of time, but it's as new as the latest technology. So about 20 years ago, we had a, a pivot in which because of digital networking technology, mm-hmm. we can scale this peer-to-peer commons approach and suddenly we can do linux we can do wikipedia we can do arduino we can do wikihouse and wikispeed we can do ardisat and we are can do things that the state and private property can actually not do it's it's been calculated that it couldn't do linux Linux being the open source, the open operating source system. software that's an alternative to Windows. But is also the fact uh, is powering about 4 billion of the 5 billion smartphones yeah. in the world. So every Android device is yeah, using and Yahoo this. and Facebook and Google, they all use right. uh, uh, open source software that couldn't exist without it. Uh, but what's more interesting is, you know, of course, you have these companies kind of trying to use this for themselves. But you also have a flowering of millions of communities and people that are doing that are saying let's do something together and so they're using this to create all kinds of things and so the first wave the new wave was immaterial it was free software it was open design it was shared knowledge the second wave 
which I studied last year in Ghent in the north of Belgium, is urban commons. So in Ghent, we went from 50 urban commons in 2006 to 500. So when you say an urban commons, what do you mean by that? Well, so we define a commons as any shared resource that is maintained by a community or a group of stakeholders mm -hmm. following their own rules and norms. So three things, an objective thing, a resource, second, a human choice to do it. So that means the commons is not something given. You have to want to make it as a commons. And the third, the the auto-normativity, this, the, this ability to set your own rules and norms. In that way, the commons is very distinct from the state, mm. the public sphere, everybody, and the private sphere, private property. You know, you rule over your own dominion, what you own. Right. Your, your home is your castle, that exactly. sort of thing, right. So the commons is different. So this is the third way between those two way. systems. Absolutely. And so the urban commons are people who say, we need organic food. There's market and state fail. They're not doing it. Let's do it. Let's do a community-supported agriculture in which the ecosystem becomes a commons. Even though the farmers may still own their land on their own or as a co-op, doesn't matter, but they've, they will create an ecosystem in which they discuss together, consumers and producers, how to do this in a solidary way. So we're not in the kind of power-based market here. We are in a kind of ethical generative market. And I make now a very strong dis distinction between extractive practice and generative practice. All right. And could you make, make, just make that clear for us? What do you mean by extractive versus well, if generative? You're, if you're uh, a farmer and you do industrial agriculture, right. you're actually exhausting your soil. Right. Because so, you're not replacing the things that are being taken out by exactly. the industrial agriculture. And, uh, no, there's a few really scary studies. Like in the UK, we have like 70 or 80 harvests left. Right. before the, the, the soil is completely dead. And in Australia, this is always all farming in Australia because the soils were exhausted because there hasn't been a volcanic cycle to renew them and so on and so forth because the mountains eroded away several hundred million years ago. Right, but I, I would challenge that. I think if you're, you know, if you do permaculture and organic agriculture, we'll actually see that, that your soil improves every year. Mm -hmm. So there are techniques. We can use regenerative techniques um, but you can also apply that to people. So, um, you know, I, I might differ with you about this because I remember you were quite enthusiastic about Uber at some point. <laughs> oh, uh, but the bloom has fallen uh, from that rose. Oh, okay. Uh, but let's take Airbnb to take a, a, another example. So Airbnb originally was sold as a way for people who don't have enough money to, you know, to do their the extra room. Yeah. And I have nothing against that. But of course, what it has become is this machine where you have distributed hotels and people have 30, 40, 50 rooms. And so in Paris, there are now 26% of the apartments not available to Parisians. Yeah. And so young and poor people are chased away. So this is not generative for people. Right. It's extractive for people. It's just, so we need to do different things. And there's two things we can change and that I'm working on with other people. One is platform cooperatives which is say let's let's co-own the platforms in which we exchange and do things and we can also do this maybe we'll talk about it later with things like the blockchain mm -hmm. let's commonify the blockchain let's see if we can use the blockchain to do commons economies 
Okay, so we now have this idea that we have this urban commons. We have this first generation of what we might think of as the open source software platforms, the urban commons. Where is this now moving? What's the next thing that's coming along with that? Yes. So what what we see, the limitation of immaterial is, is, of course, that we are only doing knowledge. The limitation of urban commons is mostly that we are redistributing only. So if you do a housing co-op, you're usually not making the house it's just another arrangement. Right. If we do non-profit or cooperative car sharing, we're not making the cars. Right. Right. So the next one is a bit more ambitious and will be much more difficult. And that's what we call Cosmo Local Production. And the rule is very simple. It simply says that everything that's light should be global and shared. And But everything that's heavy should be relocalized as much as we can. So it should be distributed manufacturing close to the place of need and i talk you know to distinguish it very clearly from trumpism and brexit and you know national protectionism i talk about the subsidiarity of material production it doesn't not everything has to be local Mm. but do we really need a, a tennis ball in wimbledon with 400 ingredients that have traveled, you know, for 40,000 miles. Well, there's this concept of food miles that people are also aware of, which is the same thing, right? Where, in fact, I believe in England, it's cheaper to buy New Zealand lamb than it is to buy local lamb because of the, the way the systems of production and delivery are set up. Yes, yes. And, you know, you could argue that, you know, capitalism has been quite successful, at least in, in Western countries, to create, you know, uh, wealthy... Yeah. Uh, society and incredibly long value chains of production, distribution, and sale that make all of that possible as well. Right, but there's a problem, which is, of course, as we are all aware, of, is we're eating the planet up. Mm. So it's not successful ecologically, and so now we have to rethink production in terms of how can we fulfill the maximum amount of human needs without crossing planetary boundaries. Right. So this is really the challenge of the times. And one of the aspects of this is that, uh, you know, apart from the other problems like planned obsolescence, we actually make things to break, is that um, we spend three times as much on matter and energy on transport than on actually making things, right? And I've I've studied this in Ghent. If you do car sharing well, Mm. not like Uber, where all the drivers compete with each other to be at the right place at the right time, uh, but you calculate for a neighborhood, for example, how many cars would you need so that every person in the neighborhood has a car whenever they want it. Right. Right. So they came up with 130 cars for 1,300 people. So 10%, basically. About 10%. And think about this. this and, that, and that would vary because if you're in a, a far suburban neighborhood, you might have a higher percentage than someone's in a yes, dense urban I, core know, neighborhood. I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't yeah. know that. But it's, it, it's, there are people who know how to do this. Yeah. But the thing is, uh, on our, so... They studied this in San Francisco, where they said that every shared car in that system replaced 9 to 13 private cars. Mm -hmm. So this is my thesis, is that the commons is not just a choice, it's also a necessity. Like, if you want to maintain complex societies Mm. in a situation where we're already using up 1.6 of the planet, and where the Chinese and the Indians and the Africans want to have the same level, which would mean we would need four or five planets that this can only be done 
to these you know cosmolocal modalities it's really interesting that you bring this up i will not tell a story that i heard many years ago when i started working in telecommunications the bell system which was the national telephone network in america ran a calculation in the late 1940s and they realized that at the growth of the telephone network there would not be enough copper you would mine the entire planet of copper just to provide enough telephone service in america and that that would happen by sort of the mid-1960s and they saw this coming and they're like well what can we do about this and this is when they invented the idea of multiplexing a signal so being able to take a single wire and put many signals across it and this is sort of the foundation for now what we would think of as the internet and all of the other networks which have many signals going across them simultaneously all sharing the same line what we may be starting to see now is that we're flipping this from again from signals now over into the material world where rather than saying that we're all going to share this copper line for a call we're now all going to share this this car or this platform yeah. for common use and therefore not have to mine all the copper out of the world. Exactly. This is a, a good uh, a good image. And there is, a, you know, there's actually historical studies. Uh, one is called Handy, Human and Nature Dynamics, which looked from the Neolithic until today. Mm. And it's a very interesting thesis. It says all civilizations have collapsed because of overuse. So as long as you're in a peer polity, where you know ruling classes are competing with each other they will tend to overuse right. their their territory and eventually they will collapse and every time there is a recommodification of these civilizations so you would think about 12th century japan mm -hmm. 15th century china mm -hmm. 5th century europe and what you would see is a return of the commons in japan for example the the land became the commons of the emperor. You couldn't use the land without asking for permission. And so you went from a totally devastated, deforested country, which isolated itself for three, 300 years, but by the 15th century, everything was green again. Uh, so this is the very important dynamic that we're in, and you could make a parallel, you know, mutualization of knowledge. Today used to be the, the Christian monks, Today is the open source communities. Mutualizing of infrastructure used to be monasteries. Now it's maker spaces, fab labs, uh, car sharing, co-ops, and then relocalization of production through the feudal system. Today would be distributed manufacturing. So these three things are happening at the same time. And we, we can see this quite clearly because a feudal manor had all of the pieces that it would need to be able to be self-sufficient. They might need to trade for specific things that they couldn't make themselves, but that was always a very limited set of things, often luxury goods, and so therefore not necessary. But they were able to make things locally. You're also talking about, though, a feudal economy is running on a very different sort of basis than what we would think of as a modern capitalist economy with all these different global actors all trading very freely with one another. How do we get to a point where we feel comfortable that we're not going to fall back to a feudal standard of living if we start to make a shift toward more local production? Because well, I think a lot of people is, have this is that my fear. Hope. This is my hope. So, you know, I, th I think we sh should seriously consider collapse at a global scale. I'm not sure of it, but, you know, I've read a lot of studies that point in that direction. Um, 
And I think we have a chance uh, to actually avoid that kind of subsistence economy and to maintain complex social uh, and societal services through mutualization. So, you know, like if I was a city, that's what I would do. I would say, okay, how, where do we get our energy from? Where do we get our food from? And then I would rethink the provisioning of these uh, vital resources through the commons, not with an eye of, you know, everything, everybody living like a farmer in the Middle Ages, but actually living like, let's say, you know, a, a working class people in the 1960s. Right, which was you a know, very high standard of living. Which was a very high standard of living historically. And, you know, half of it would save, would save the planet, and the other half could actually serve to broaden, you know, welfare to to mm-hmm. people who don't have it yet. So that's a hope. And, I, you know, I'm not saying this is going to happen, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, if we can convince a number of bioregions to do this and, and show that it can happen, we we actually already show that it can happen in food. If you look at organic food, mm. uh, it can be done. We, you know, there's 10% of organic of food is already organic in, in Europe. And a lot of it, I don't know how, ma- how much percent, but a lot of it is done through community-supported agriculture, urban gardening, you know, permaculture. I mean, there's a flowering. So of, of the 500 projects in Ghent, 80 were food projects. That's pretty much already a, a sizable number of people. So that's tw- you're talking twenty percent of the work yes. of, the, of the commons work is right. now. And and be, bear in mind, this is still in a period people don't have to do it. Mm. These are people choosing to do it. Mm. So people with kind of a what I would say like a preliminary uh, consciousness, right? A kind of they are feeling ahead what's coming to them and already preparing. We're talking to Michelle Bowens on the next billion seconds, and we'll be right back. And we're back on the next billion seconds talking to Michelle Bowen. So, Michelle, we have this idea that there's a transition in process now. You know, it's happening at points. And, you know, as with the quote with, from William Gibson, the future's already here. It's not. It's just not evenly distributed. So we're seeing these points pop up where it's happening. But this is also against the backdrop of the rapid industrialization of China. China's already very well along that arc. India is now coming along that arc, and Africa is immediately behind that on that arc. And so we're now seeing these other civilizations in their own rights booting up. Are we seeing them build a commons philosophy into this, or are they simply going to replicate what worked for us? Yeah, that's a complex uh, reality, I think, because, I mean, sociologically they are in the space where we were in the 50s and the 60s. Right. So, so aspirational and seeing the the future being better than the past. Exactly. And so in terms of ecological consciousness, it's still very low. I mean, I say this with confidence because I, I live there. Right. I live in Thailand and I've you know traveled quite a bit in Asia um, with the exception perhaps of the Chinese government, yeah. which at the same time as it's overusing its resources is also already preparing the future mm-hmm. but that's kind of exceptional mm-hmm. uh, on the world scale but I would say that the majority of the people who come out of poverty into the middle class the dominant theme is still now it's our turn mm-hmm. and of course the tragedy is that they're too late that yes they can they're growing yes they you know more and more people going to the middle class but the physical basis of the planet is already overstretched so this is going to be the big challenge 
uh, is that the stability of these countries depends on this constant economic growth mm-hmm. that keeps the political you know stability as soon as that is in danger you have a lot of frustration and social anger which is exactly what we're seeing right now in the United States of America yes yes except that they're of course yeah they're going down rather than up so it's it's a long it's a result of a long period of middle class stagnation working class stagnation mm. and a final breaking of the hope that neoliberal globalization is the solution for them Okay, so if that is the problem, and I, I, and I don't want to focus too much on that because I think that that problem is clear, what can we start to see as solutions that are being proposed, I, I suppose, to transition people to, again, these more commons-based approaches that allows them to sustain a healthy standard of living, this aspirational standard in these countries, Sustainably, I mean, because that's this is really, I guess, the arc of what we're talking about is how do we then transition from the arc of overconsumption into the arc of sustainability? Well, we we have to look actually, actually like in the West, we have to look for pockets, pockets, seed forms of anticipatory practice, uh, and you find them everywhere. I mean, uh, just to give you maybe two examples, uh, one is in China. Um, and you know, I spend a lot of time in in Shanghai uh, looking at distributed manufacturing, and I have a friend that's called David Lee who has explained to me how Shenzhen works. Mm. It's it's an open source economy. Yes, it is. It doesn't have the name. No. It doesn't use the licenses, but that's what it is. Yeah. And it's actually at the core of their success. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things they do in China, which is a fairly big project, I think, it's called the National Rural Reconstruction Movement. So here's what they do. And again, I'm coming back to my idea of ecosystems. Yeah, so you have workers, migrant workers, going from the villages to the cities, where they congregate in cultural houses that are linked to their provinces. Mm-hmm. So this project uses the workers to transport organic food. So you got the poor villagers mm-hmm. moving to organic food, mm-hmm. which has a higher value than you know the other kind of food send it to the workers who sell it to the middle class in the in the Chinese cities. Because there's always a flow of workers exactly. going from these villages yes. so they become the transport link. Exactly. Ah, very and then, clever. And then they send highly educated middle class youngsters who yeah. want to go back to the countryside. And they've already trained... Which is what they did during the Cultural Revolution but not by choice. Exactly. Yeah, but that's, that's the yes. point thing is choice. But so already they trained 15,000 people to go back to the countryside to do organic farming. But this is really interesting because these are people who are educated, no technology. So, you know, they're bringing a whole new consciousness to the countryside. And so I think that's a good example of a project that is, you know, sustainable, both ecologically, but also socially. It creates income streams for everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, I was also in Mumbai uh, just before coming to Australia, and I I stayed a few days um, with the Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay, which is like the MIT. There are six or seven, and that's the the one with the best reputation. Mm. And I was at uh, something called the Center for Policy Design. It's a transdisciplinary group. Mm -hmm. And I was amazed. First of all, all the professors are socially engaged, Mm. you know, equity oriented. Mm. They want the country to be a more equal, better uh, place. The level of the students, amazing. I mean, very complex data analysis. I mean, I mean, these are 
really bright people. Yes, and we remember this is the nation that invented mathematics, and so they are no slouches in that department. Exactly, and also, you know, which personally I, I, I like better than, say, the Chinese uh, alternative, is that these are really critical thinkers. Yeah. They can read what they want, they can discuss, they read... Um, and so you have a lot of less, you know, groupthink. Uh, people are uh, more, I think, uh, from my experience, are really uh, creative socially. Mm-hmm. And so just a few of the projects I saw there, one is called, uh, I'm actually not sure what it's called, but it's solar lamps. So this is typical of so- cosmolocal production. So it's a solar lamp, which is an open design. Yeah. Everybody can make it, so they make it in India. Right. And so this is, to give you an idea, a solar lamp is something that's generally used in a village that doesn't have a mains electric supply, right? So you set it out to charge during the day, and then it's used at night so the kids can read their school books. Someone can charge their smartphone off of it, that sort of thing. So this is one million kids today who can read and study that couldn't do that before. That's amazing. Yes. And they're going to be going to eight million in, I think, a year and a half. But they're, so, but they're going to 8 million by basically making these little production centers everywhere? How is that happening? Well, I'm not sure exactly how that's happening, but, you know, I mean, you, you, you can play with Cosmo Local, uh, you know, at different levels. Mm. And so that's why I always talk about subsidiarity of production. You mm-hmm. know, what's, what's the most appropriate lowest level? It doesn't have to be necessarily in your village. Mm-hmm. You know, that depends on the context. But, you know, it's already good that it's made there. It's not imported. Yeah. And they don't have to pay IP. Yeah. Very important. That keeps it very cheap. A uh, second project uh, which I saw there was called Spoken Tutorials. And, you know, they make 10-minute tutorials read from a slideshow. Mm-hmm. N- novice check means they really check it out first that everybody understands what's, what's in there. You know, and they have, I don't know how many hundreds of courses and also already 400,000 students mm using this outside of the uh, universities. Right, and presumably delivered on smartphone. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, they have the choice. And, but what, what the way it works is that the colleges become members, pay mm-hmm. a membership fee that funds the project, mm-hmm. and then anybody can register through the colleges. And, and how do they get the content? Is it a Wikipedia-like model where anyone can contribute, it's, or is it... No, it's it's uh, professionally made right. by a staff of about 80 people right now, and they told me they were going up to 300. Okay. So this is growing, and it's funded by the Indian government, mm-hmm. but it's also funded by the colleges paying a membership fee. And so students, you know, go to the college website, get access to these courses, um, get certification. And then eventually, if you know, they can actually join the official system to the colleges. So this is an on-ramp for them into tertiary education. Exactly, and this is also for people who normally don't have access mm. to these pathways. Right. So, and then they were making a computer. I think it was called RDV or RDG, and it has Debian on it, and it has everything on it you you may want to need. Because I remember when I was using Ubuntu. I was still frustrated a few years ago because, you know, I had to look up so many things all the time. Mm. And I'm not a tech guy, so I was frustrated by, at that time, using it. And so looking at that computer, which is totally, totally open source, Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be very, very, very cheap, 
Um, and again, it's going to be made in India. It's open source. So again, that's Cosmo local production. And they've also got a new chip called the RISC-V chip that I am aware of that is an open source design. So similar to the kinds of chips that you'd find in smartphones or even in server farms because it's quite powerful. But again, they're making it, they're designing the chip in India, probably at one of the IITs, they're making it in India from that open source design so that they have a complete, I guess, infrastructure mm -hmm. that's not so much Indian as right. local. And I don't know if this is true, but this is what I was told. You know, they believe they have 10 years in their old models, you know, vertical integration. And they were looking at a blockchain, ecosystems, Cosmo local production and I actually saw an article written by two people from Tata and it was really weird because half of the article is stuff I've been saying for 10 years but so to see that that high level you know in the research department of these really big conglomerates shows you something is changing so this it's good that you said this because this leads into my next question it feels from what both of us have seen over the last 25 years, that there has been a learning process going on around how we share and how we learn. And the web was a, a, a sort of a fundamental enabler of that, the internet before that, but the web was the fundamental enabler. And then a whole bunch of technologies constellated around the web and Wikipedia. And it seems as though, and this is certainly one of the things I found in my own research, that we've been learning better how to work together at scale, what you've been saying. Are we hitting... Am I hearing you saying that we're hitting an inflection point here where our ability to learn, to learn at scale is actually taking off? Um, I, I think so. I mean, I couldn't prove this, uh, but... You know, if you look at the but well, no, 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 but let me push yeah. back on that because you know, again, you're reading these weird articles written by senior executives at India's largest industrial combine that owns Jaguar and owns steel factories and does all of these other things, and if they're they're seeing this and they're putting this out there to the board, presumably and to their investors, then what is that telling us about what's going on here? Well, I you know, I think. Um, like politicians, I talked to quite a few politicians in Belgium. I basically met every, almost every chair of, of the political parties because I, you know, I had a book out in, in Flemish and French. And they also say, they all say that we're stuck. Like they really know that the current system is stuck. Yeah. Oh, I think that there's nowhere, a broad right? perception among uh, the democratic West, I think, that things are stuck. Absolutely. Right. And and the same is true of big companies. I've you know, I spent four days on a cruise ship uh, with a huge company rethinking their strategy around climate change, mm -hmm. for example. Um, a ship is such an interesting place to be doing that yeah, as we well. You can't escape. You can't <laughs> escape. <laughs> uh, but so I mean, they also say they're stuck. Yeah. There's a lot of things they want to do, they don't do. But, you know, to know that they are paying people to think about this and that they're talking, you know, to fairly high levels of the company, I think in itself is significant. So they're, they're looking at scenarios, right? They're looking at different scenarios. And um, so here's a kind of a vision that I have that maybe it's not realistic, but I think is you know interesting for your your listeners to hear. So what we're doing with the P2P Foundation is seed forms, right? The old system is no longer working, mm -hmm. so you need to find solutions with a different logic. Mm -hmm. And historically, that's how systems arose. If you look at capitalism, 
It was purgatory because otherwise Christians couldn't lend money. It was the printing press, you know, to bypass the knowledge blockage of the Catholic Church. It was double entry book accounting written by a Franciscan friar, etc., etc. Eventually, these seed forms find each other, form a subsystem, and then eventually the subsystem takes over. Mm -hmm. Takes a few hundred years. Uh, and so this is happening now. And so the, but the question is, how do we change the main system, mm. right? Because it's not going to happen only with seed forms. And, uh, you know, in, in the, if you look at uh, Europe, what happened was that the Germanic tribes came in, Roman Empire had dissolved, and then say, oh, these uh, Christians uh, know how to do this, so we make a deal with them. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of created, you know, the new society. Um, there is an interesting social movement in uh, Europe, which is called the Common Good Economy Movement. It was created by uh, Christian Felber, who was an Austrian, uh, was a member of Attack, which is kind of a left-wing think tank, you know, around Mont Diplomatique. And he looked at the um, constitutions of European states. And guess what? Every constitution says the economy should serve the common good. Right. Which means that any law that says that there is a fiduciary responsibility of companies to serve shareholders, shareholders is actually not constitutional. Now, you can say that. It doesn't mean you have the power to change it. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that you'll get a, a high court judge no, no, to no, agree no. But, either. But, but listen but. to this, because so what they're doing in this, they have already 2,000 organizations and companies mm -hmm. applying the common good balance, mm -hmm. which is a set of 17 indicators representing common good activity. Now, imagine this, uh, that one day they're strong enough to have a constitutional convention could happen yeah. you know in extreme yeah. circumstances what you would then have is you could change the whole structure and say actually every company is a purpose driven entity and then they would compete on how they achieve common good uh, see so that's the kind of dialectic that so I rather see. than achieving profit in other words resetting the goal exactly right rather than setting the goal as a return to profit to shareholders yes. it's it's setting a goal around uh, the common good but presumably then doing that in a way that's sustainable not just for the common good but for the organization so the organization doesn't just flame out exactly so you would they would be able to preserve themselves yeah. they would still have CEOs um, but they would be judged entirely differently and the taxation and subsidies would depend on their achieving these common good goals right and this is a dialectic between seed forms yeah. and, may, and, and a big change that could happen and I imagine that at some moment, you know, this location is going so bad that society says, stop, we can't afford these predators. You know, we have to change their behavior. And then you'd have a social basis to change and to, you know, have peer-to-peer -peer on steroids. So last question. I can see the logic of this. Does that change have to happen globally can it happen at a national level? Can it happen at a state level? Can it happen at a city level? Can it happen at a neighborhood level? Or does it have to happen everywhere all at once? Because that seems like it's a much higher No, I don't threshold. think so. I, I think what you need are exemplars, and then they can replicate. Um, I So memes, basically, a good idea that yeah, people but, then you know, see I, and copy. I studied the Middle Ages for a while because I was interested to see how that worked. And, you know, 
take about uh, think about the sister sensors. I, it's, I hope I have some time to explain because it's fascinating. So you know the, what the Christians bring to European civilization after the Romans and the Greeks is work and pray. For the Romans and the Greeks, work is for the slaves. Mm-hmm. It's bad. Mm-hmm. Christians bring this innovation. But the Benedictines were clever about it. They made other people work for them. And so St. Bernard says, no, 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 we have to work and pray. And here's what they do. Here's what he says. We have, we get everything from God, so we have to be very efficient at prayer. So we have to be very efficient at work so that we can maximally pray. Mm-hmm. So they're prayer-maximizing enterprises. And they replicate through splitting. Right. There are bee swarms, you know, and in in like fifty years, there's like eight hundred of them, yep. and you know they invent and they um, do farming and they do forges. Right, and there's the rule of Saint Benedict, which is the constitution yes, exactly. for all of these chapters. Exactly, and so this is what I'm saying to the people, you know, that I work with is like what they did was value sovereignty. They said, "Stop! Here stops the Roman law, or you know the what was the Salic law." Salic law. Here we follow other rules, and so they created a membrane between feudal society and their internal infrastructure. And they redistributed the wealth in a different way. So this is, you know, once we have things that work, they can replicate, they can spread. But here's the key for me: it's going to be, I think, the cities, because the nation state is in a rut. Mm. Capital is transnational. Mm. If you want to change anything at the nation state level, you have a capital strike, and within three days you're dead. Cities, this is what I talked about again. Cities can do global open design depositories for every provisioning system. Jen Scully, who's who's a counselor here, and I talked exactly about this. And and I'm wondering if the future isn't around the city-state, like Singapore, places like that, Shanghai, Hong Kong, whether these aren't representing these kinds of models. Yes, but also, so what I want to say is that they shouldn't be seen as local entities. Mm. They should be seen as translocal entities. So it's not not so much Singapore as the Hanseatic League. Ah, okay. And the Hanseatic League, for our listeners who aren't versed in medieval history, unlike Michelle and I, was a league of basically states along the Baltic Sea, so League of Cities, uh, that were all basically run by the, the merchants, run, run by the merchants, and they would have chapter houses in cities like London and in Paris, and they would trade, and right. so they were a league of trading. Yes, yes. You know, it's an interesting period uh, because you know we we shouldn't forget that the between eleven and the thirteenth century, cities were free. Mm. A lot of them, they had free constitutions, and they were run by the workers. Right. The merchants were considered workers at the time. They yeah. were guilds. Well, they weren't aristocracy, so they yeah. were. And that's an interesting period. So, because we're going back to a fragmentation of sovereignty, right? So, fragmented sovereignty. Michelle Bowens, this has been an amazing, optimistic, mind-bending talk. Thank you for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds. With pleasure, Mark. Michelle Bowens is first among his peers in this generation, but he stands on the shoulders of giants. Douglas Engelbart is first among those giants. Our world of connected sharing begins with him. Over the next four episodes of The Next Billion Seconds, we're very pleased to be producing a series within a series, a look back into Engelbart's story. It tells us a lot about where we've come from and where we're going. We're coming up to the 50th anniversary of an event that's known as the Mother 
of all demos. When Douglas Engelbart gave an hour-long presentation that literally changed the world, previewing the world that we inhabit today. So much of our world came from him and his team. Yet very few know about Engelbart, his influence, or the mother of all demos. So in the weeks leading up to the anniversary on December 9th, Dr. Genevieve Bell and I will be taking you on a tour of the world before Engelbart and how his work, together with the work of curator J.C. Reichardt and interface pioneer Ivan Sutherland, changed the world. We're calling our series 1968 When the World Began because we reckon we can trace almost all of our world back to those 12 tumultuous months when everything seemed to be falling apart, when everything finally came together. That's starting next week. Michelle Bowen's gift is to be able to find and share the best ideas from all around the world. So it's our promise that we will be linking to as many of those as we can. Look for all of that on our website at nextbillionseconds.com. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking about peer responsibilities and capabilities? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in Series 3. In the meantime, we have four episodes of 1968 When the World Began coming your way starting next week. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, Thanking you for listening.